Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, welcome to Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, Chapter 27, Druidism and Freemasonry. Preston, in commencing his history of Freemasonry in England, asserts that there are convincing proofs that the science of Freemasonry was not unknown to the early Britons even before the time of the invasion of the Romans. Therefore, he suggests the probability that the Druids, that ancient order of religious priests in Britain and Gaul, retained among them many usages similar to those of Freemasons, but he candidly admits that this is a mere guess. Hutchinson thinks it's probable that many of the rites and institutions of the Druids were used in forming the ceremonies of the Masonic Society. Payne, who probably knew, by the way, as little of Freemasonry as he did of the religion of the Druids, positively asserts that Masonry is the remains of the religion of the ancient Druids, who, like the Magi of Persia and the priests of Heliopolis in Egypt, were priests of the sun. The learned Faber, a much better qualified authority than Payne, offers the opinion that the Druidical bards, those minstrel poets who sang or recited the great deeds of heroes, are probably the real founders of English Freemasonry. Godfrey Higgins, whose inventive genius, fertile imagination, and exceeding confidence in the weakest of evidence render his great work, The Anacalypsis, altogether unreliable, says that he has no doubt that the Masons were Druids, Culetier, or Chaldier, and Cassidians. Dr. Oliver, it is true, denies that the Freemasons of the present day were derived from the Druids. He thinks that the latter were a branch of what he calls the spurious Freemasonry, which was a succession from the pure Freemasonry of the patriarchs. But he finds many analogies in the rites and symbols of the two institutions, which indicate their common origin from an earlier system, namely the ancient mysteries of the pagans. The theory of those who find a connection either in analogy or by succession between the Druids and the Freemasons accounts for this likeness or descent, as the case may be, by supposing that the Druids received their system either from Pythagoras or from the ancient mysteries through the Phoenicians who visited Britain at an early period for commercial purposes. Before we can profitably discuss the relations of Druidism to Freemasonry, or be prepared to determine whether there were any association whatever between the two, it will be necessary to give a brief sketch of the history and character of the former. This is a topic which, outside of any Masonic reference, is not without interest. Of all the institutions of antiquity, there is none with which we are less acquainted than that of the Druidism of Britain and Gaul. Recent investigations of expert students of the old relics and remains have tended to cast much doubt on the guesses of the writers of the 17th and 18th centuries. Stukeley, for instance, one of the most learned of those who have sought to build out of the stone monuments of England a connected history of Druidism, has been said by Ferguson in his work on rude stone monuments, to have been indebted more to a lively imagination than to trustworthy facts for the theory which he has attempted to establish. The skepticism of Ferguson is, however, not less objectionable in a critical inquiry than the extreme belief of Stokely. There is evidently a middle way between them. 
Ferguson cannot deny the existence of Druids in Gaul and Britain since the fact is stated by Caesar. He supposes that there were two distinct races on the island, the original inhabitants, who were of Turanian origin, and being more uncivilized, were driven by the other race, who were Celts, into the fastness of the Welsh hills long before the Roman invasion. Among the former people, he thinks that the religion of Druidism, consisting of tree and serpent worship, may have been practiced. And he accounts for the error of the classical writers in describing the priests of the latter race as Druids by crediting it to the mix-up of the two races by the uncritical Romans. More recently, a bold and very skeptical theory has been advanced by Dr. Ignaz Goldzier in his work on mythology among the Hebrews, which aims to absolutely destroy Druidism as a system of secret initiation among the ancient Britons, whose Druidism was only a national religion. Thus, he credits its invention to the modern Welsh, who he believes created it for the purpose of elevating and strengthening their own nationality in their rivalry with the English. He says... The Kimri of Wales, becoming alive to the opposition in nationality between themselves and the English, felt the need of finding a justification of this opposition in the oldest prehistoric times. It was then first suggested to them that they were descendants of the ancient, renowned Celtic nation, and to keep alive this Celtic national pride, they introduced an institution of new Druids, a sort of secret society like the Freemasons. The new Druids, like the old ones, taught a sort of national religion which, however, the people having long become Christian and preserved no independent national traditions, they had mostly to invent themselves. Thus arose the so-called Celtic mythology of the god Hu and the goddess Caridulu, or Caridwin, etc., mere po poetical fictions which never lived in popular belief. The questions involved in this difference of opinion are not critically and completely decided. We shall therefore content ourselves with giving the views of the history and religion of the Druids as they have been generally received and believed, without confusing the subject with the contending speculations which have been fostered by the too ready confidence and faith, or the mere imagination of one side, and attacked by the skepticism of the other. The word Druids means workers in magic, having more than the usual human powers over nature. They were priests of the religion of the ancient Britons, among whom they exercised almost unlimited influence and authority. They presided over and directed the education of the youths. They decided without appeal all legal differences. They were freed from all taxes and law charges. And whoever refused to submit to their decisions on any question was subjected to being expelled from among the faithful, by which he was forbidden access to the altars or the taking part in religious rites, and could not associate with his relatives, his friends, or his countrymen. No superstition was ever more terrible than that of the priest-ridden Britons. The Druids were under the chief authority of an archdruid whose office was held for life, but to which he was in the first place elected by a council of priests, who continued as his advisors. The priesthood was divided into three orders, the highest being the Druids, and below these were the prophets and the vates or bards. They held an annual assembly at which disputed questions were decided and new laws were made or old ones repealed. They held also four quarterly meetings on the days of the equinoxes and the solstices. They per permitted none of their doctrines or ceremonies to be committed to common writing, but used instead a secret cipher to conceal them. This, Caesar says, consisted of the letters of the Greek alphabet, a statement by no means probable since it would infer knowledge by them of the Greek language, a matter of which we have no evidence. The view of Toland is more likely to be true. He supposes that the characters used were those of the Irish Ogham alphabet. 
Sir James Ware, who wrote in Latin in about the middle of the 17th century, a work of the Antiquities of Ireland, says that the ancient Irish, besides the vulgar characters, used also various occult or artificial forms of writing called ogham, in which they wrote their secrets. And he adds that he himself was in possession of an ancient book or parchment filled with these characters. Their places of worship were, according to the writings in that very period of Caesar and Tacitus, in sacred groves. Stukely and other scholars of that class of study supposed that the great stone monuments found in Britain, such as Stonehenge and Avebury, were druidical temples. But Ferguson denies this and asserts that there is no passage in any classical author which connects the druids either directly or indirectly with any stone temples or stones of any sort. The question remains unsettled, but the position taken by Ferguson seems to be supported by strong evidence. Their worship, like that of the ancient mysteries, was accompanied by a secret initiation. Their doctrines were made known only to the initiated who were strictly forbidden to expose them to the profane. What were the precise forms of this initiation? It is impossible to say. The Druids themselves, wedded to their oral or purely memory mouth-to-ear system of instruction, have left no records. But Dr. Oliver, depending on inferences that he has drawn from the Welsh triads, from the poem of the ancient bard Taliesin, and some other Cambrian authorities, aided by the inventive genius of his own imagination, has afforded us a very minute, if not altogether accurate, detail of these initiatory ceremonies. The account is entirely too long for reproduction, but a summary of it will not be uninteresting. Previous to admission to the first degree, or that of the Vates, the candidate was given a careful preparation, which in a special case is extended to the long period of 20 years. The ceremony of initiation began by placing the candidate in the pastos, chest, or coffin, in which he remained enclosed for three days to represent death, and was liberated or restored to life on the third day. The sanctuary or temple being now prepared for the business of initiation, the druids are duly arranged, being appropriately clothed and crowned with the evergreen ivy. The candidate representing a blind man is then introduced while a hymn to the sun is chanted. He is placed under the care of an officer whose duty it is to receive him in the land of rest, and he is directed to kindle the fire under the cauldron of Seridwen, the druidical goddess. A procession in dramatic style is then formed, and the candidate makes a circumambulation of nine times around the sanctuary, and circles from east to west by the south. The procession is first slow and amid a death-like silence. At length, the pace increases to a rapid and furious motion, accompanied with the clash and clang of noisy instruments and the screams of harsh and discordant voices, reciting in verse the praises of those heroes who were brave in war, courteous in peace, and patrons of religion. This sacred ceremony was followed by the pledging by the initiate of an oath of secrecy, a breach of which could be atoned for only by death. Then succeeded a series of ceremonies in which, by means of masks, the candidate was made to assume the character of various animals, such as the dog, the deer, the mare, the cock, etc. This, according to Oliver, concluded the first part of the ceremony of initiation. The second part began with striking the candidate. A violent blow on the head with an oar, and a pitchy darkness immediately ensued, which was soon changed into a blaze of light, which illuminated the whole area of the shrine. This sudden change from darkness to light was intended to show forth the same transition which Noah experienced on coming out from the gloom of the ark to the brightness of the renewed world. Thus it is claimed that the Druids were archite worshippers, a concession by Oliver to the theories of Faber and Bryant. The light was then withdrawn, and the candidate was again overcome by darkness and disorder. The most dismal howls, shrieks, and wails salute his astonished ear. 
Thus, the symbolic death of Noah, presented as a type also of his confinement in the ark, was shown with every outward sign of sorrow. Alarmed at the discordant noises, the candidate naturally sought to escape, but this was rendered impossible. Wherever he turned, he was opposed by dogs who threatened him. At length, the great goddess Seridwen seized him and bore him away by main force to the mythical sea representing the floodwaters over which Noah floated. Here he is supposed to have remained for a year in the character of Arawan or Noah. The same terrifying sounds continued until at length, having come from the stream, the darkness ceased and the candidate found himself surrounded by the most brilliant flashes of light. This change produced in the attendants corresponding emotions which were expressed by shouts and loud songs of praise that testified to their rejoicings at the restoring to life of their god. The aspirant was then presented to the archdruid, who explained to him the design of the mysteries, gave him some portion of the secret knowledge of druidism, and also advised the practice of fortitude, which was valued as one of the leading traits of perfection. With the performance of these painful ceremonies, the first degree of initiation into the druidical mysteries was finished. In the second degree, where the trials from Oliver's description appear to have been of a less severe character, the candidate underwent lustration, a typical ablution or cleansing, which was followed by his reception of the light of wisdom. He was instructed in the morality of the order, taught that souls are immortal and must live in a future state, solemnly pledged to observe the performance of divine worship and the practice of virtue, and was invested with some of the badges of Druidism. Among these was the crystal, the true mark of his initiation. This crystal, or talisman against danger, was made only by the druids, and its color varied in the three degrees. In the first it was green, in the second blue, and in the third white. The one presented to the aspirant was a combination of these colors. Beyond the second degree, very few persons advanced. The third was conferred only on persons of rank and high standing, and in it the aspirant passed through still more toilsome ceremonies of training and instruction. The candidate was placed in solitary confinement for a period of nine months, which time was devoted to reflection and to the study of the sciences, so that he might be prepared more fully to understand the sacred truths in which he was about to be instructed. He was again submitted to a symbolic death and rebirth by ceremonies different from those of the first degree. He was then supposed to represent a newborn infant, and being placed in a coracle or boat was given to the mercy of the waters. The candidate, says Oliver, was actually set adrift in the open sea, and he was obliged to depend on his own personal powers and presence of mind to reach the opposite shore in safety. This was done at night, and this journey in the darkness, which sometimes cost the candidate his life, was the closing act of his initiation. Should he refuse to undertake it, he was rejected with contempt and pronounced unworthy of a part in the honors to which he aspired, and for which he was forever afterward declared unfit. But if he bravely entered on the voyage and landed safely, he was received in triumph by the archdruid and his companions. He was recognized as a druid and became eligible for any religious, civil, or military dignity. The whole circle of human science was open to his investigation. The knowledge of divine things was communicated without reserve. He was now enabled to perform the mysterious rites of worship and had his understanding enriched with the elaborate system of morality. Little is known of the religion of the Druids on which these ceremonies are supposed to be founded, and concerning that, little, the opinions of the learned differ greatly. Among those institutions, says Toland, which are thought to be irrevocably lost, one is that of the Druids, of which the learned have hitherto known nothing but by some fragments concerning them out of the Greek and Roman authors. Thus the comments and criticisms relating to their true worship have been almost as various as the writers who have discussed them. 
Caesar, who got his knowledge of the Druids imperfect as it was, from the priest of that period of Gaul, says that they worshipped as their chief god, Mercury, whom they considered as the inventor of all the arts, and after him Apollo, Mars, Jupiter, and Minerva. But the Romans had a habit of applying to all the gods or idols of foreign nations the names and qualities of all the deities of their own myths. His statement scarcely amounts to saying more than that the Druids worshipped a variety of gods. Davies, who notwithstanding his national prejudices and prepositions, is from his learning and authority not to be despised, concurs in the view of Caesar so far as to say that it is a historical fact that the mythology and the rites of the Druids were the same in substance with those of the Greek and Romans and of other nations which came under their observation. Dionysius the geographer, another writer of the Augustan age, says that the rites of Bacchus were celebrated in Britain. Strabo, on the authority of Artemidorus, who wrote a century before Christ, asserts that in an island close to Britain, probably the Isle of Mona, where the Druids had their principal seat, Ceres and Prosperine were adored with rites similar to those of Samothracia. Bryant, who traced all the ancient religions principally on the basis of a study of language to traditions of the Deluge and the honoring of the patriarch Noah, took for granted, of course, that Druidism was but a part of this universal system of worship. Faber followed in the footsteps of his learned leader and adopted the same theory. He held the doctrine that the Druids were devoted to what he named Archite worship, or the worship of Noah, and that all their religious rites referred to the deluge, death, and immortality being shown by the confinement of the patriarch in the ark and his leaving it to enter a new and refreshed world being the symbol of the future life. And at this point, I'm going to stop and then we'll pick it up next week for the rest of the chapter. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.